Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is C.M. Alexander with the news. Horror icon Mick Garris was spotted hosting a dinner with fellow masters of horror while in Dairy over the weekend. Our invites must have been lost in the mail, but an eyewitness claims it would have been cooler if we were there. It was me. I was the eyewitness. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King Book Club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. Hey, constant readers. And today is a very special episode. I know you're like, it's not Sunday, but I'm getting an episode. Well, that's because we are going to be talking about The Master of Horror, the official biography of Mick Garris, written by Abby Bernstein. We were gifted uh, advanced copies from ATB Publishing, and we thought it'd be fun to sit around and and talk about it. And we have CM leading our discussion today. So CM, take it away. Thanks, Josh. And actually, you did a review of the book on our website, constantreaders.org, which is what we were actually asked to do. But we we enjoyed it so much that we're like, we want to talk about this as a, a bonus episode and give it to our listeners. So this is the first work of Abby's that I've read, but I think it's pretty clear from the start that the motivation for her book is to bring to light a horror master who's perhaps not the household name that he should be, despite his astounding resume and how he has influenced all of our watching lives, whether or not <laughs> no kidding. we realize it. <laughs> for sure. Uh, I assumed because uh, CM, you and Devin are, I think, the biggest well-rounded horror heads Thanks. that you you guys are always the one that are like, oh yeah, it's that guy from some movie I've never even heard of. So I assume you knew Mick Garris before right, yeah. we were contacted. I had heard the name, but I, I hadn't put the name to anything. The fact that this guy wrote Hocus Pocus right! is insane. That's so, it blew my mind. That was the first thing out of the gate that I was like, no way. I was obsessed with that movie. It, we were talking to our friends, you know, just about the book and, and his career as we were reading this. And one of our friends is like, does he know that he's responsible for giving young boys all over boners? We're, of mm. course, I'm referring to the Sarah Jessica Parker song <laughs> part. I was like, hey, man, young girls, too. <laughs> I, I did a full disclosure due to uh, our advanced copies being digital copies and technical problems. I didn't read the book, but I did go on a bit of a Mick Garris deep dive. Hocus Pocus holds the fuck up. Yeah, it does. And (laughs) also makes me very sad because I will never get to smooch 90s Sarah Jessica. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot wait till we get to talk about Critters too. But (laughs) Oh my lord. (laughs) For now, I want to give a bit of history that the biography also covers but some stuff that that really stood out to me and one of the things that has drawn me to Mick Garris's career. And we've talked about him briefly on our podcast because, of course, he did the original Stand miniseries. Mm. And we've also mentioned, either in a show proper or on our Patreon-exclusive show, The Club, that Mick Garris is the organizer of the Masters of Horror anthology Mm -hmm. series. And so I want to describe what this is in a little more detail than we've gone into in the past for some listeners who may not be familiar. Masters of Horror was an anthology TV series of one-hour movies that started off as 
Mick Garris inviting his friends to dinner. And two important things were at play for this dinner. One, those friends happened to be John Carpenter, Larry Cohen, Don Coscarelli, Joe Dante, Guillermo del Toro, Stuart Gordon, Toby Hooper, John Landis, and Bill Malone, which naturally led to the second important thing. All of those like-minded friends inevitably had a fantastic time talking about their shared interest, of course, horror. And they continued to get together, and eventually McGarris turned this into a more formal thing, and he created and produced the series. And so most of the episodes are written and directed by the original group of Masters of Horror, but they invited many other people you know, over the course of the series to participate and have episodes. And I've seen a few of them and talked about one on our show, Imprint, of which destroyed my psyche so badly (laughs) after watching that I burst into tears without knowing I was going to cry. Have you ever had surprise cry? It's (laughs) weird. Usually, you know, it's coming like it's building up and I just it hit me like a freight train. I was so emotional that the only thing that I could do was to just let it go and sob for like 10 minutes. In my That's huge. Well, but in my defense, Mick Garris He's this episode was shelved because of the content, and he's quoted as saying that it is the most disturbing film I've ever seen. And yes, I second that. It definitely is. It yeah, it's uh Takesha or I'm gonna butcher this name, Takesha Mike, right? Mm-hmm. Uh who did Ichi the Killer. <gasps> oh and yeah, so his stuff is oh, audition. Audition, yeah. Um, which is uh currently actually queued up at home. I'm going home <laughs> to watch that movie. And it's not just that episode. No. The the show as a whole is so bleak. And, like, (laughs) violent. And uh, there's an episode directed by Toby Hooper Mm -hmm. that was so just, like, nihilistic Mm -hmm. and a huge bummer that I couldn't (laughs) get through the whole episode. It was just, like, so much. (laughs) So much. There's a reason for that, which our listeners, I'm not going to go into too great a detail, but there's, there's a whole gigantic chapter specifically about all of these episodes and in a nutshell these directors like the purpose of this was we're gonna do what we want we're gonna do our vision and make it happen and not have anybody tell you know any studio interfering and (laughs) that uh you just make people cry from despair when you do that apparently (laughs) but in addition to breaking my heart the series won Saturn Emmy and Satellite Awards for Best Television Presentation, DVD Release, and Outstanding Music Composition, and Main Title Theme Music, and Best DVD Extra. So it was, it was a big deal, and people loved it. I, I remember when they were released uh, on DVD at first. They were released, like, one at a time, mm-hmm. which was very strange. <laughs> I remember being very frustrated in high school because <laughs> I wanted to watch them so mm-hmm. bad. But I was like, oh, I have to buy like 10 different DVDs <laughs> to watch this series. And the Blu-rays are not easy to get a hold of, not super cheap. There's like a Streaming special Streaming for free on Tubi, jar- everyone. I know, I really? Want, yeah. I want it though. Like I, you know how I am. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. And then finally, before we dive into more of the actual book, Mick Garris is also known for directing other King work, including Sleepwalkers, Bag of Bones. He was the co-screenwriter and executive producer of, as we said, like, well, we didn't say this, but I think it's clear, the best Halloween movie alongside Halloween 3, Hocus Pocus. (laughs) And he wrote Critters 2 
among many other things, including Psycho 4. So if you want to know Mick Garris better and familiarize yourself with his work, if you're not already, you can listen to his podcast, The Postmortem with Mick Garris. Okay, so let's get to it. Before we start, let's having not, 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 <laughs> not read the book, it's how much detail does the book get into in that first dinner with all of the masters of horror getting together? All because the detail. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I can't imagine being, have you ever had the the thought experiment like, okay, you can have a dinner party with five celebrities living mm-hmm. or dead. Who do you pick? Mm-hmm. That dinner party is a hell of a list. Right. Oh, it yeah. Alexander Skarsgård, Bill Skarsgård. <laughs> Wait, what? They were her, her there? List. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, I get that. That's my list of five people. But sure. <laughs> it made me want to just get on Mick Garris's dinner invitation list <laughs> just sometime just to have dinner with someone who had dinner with all those people. <laughs> I, I just want to be adjacent to that dinner. I want to watch through the window, <laughs> but in a, uh, in a supportive way. way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listeners, someone uh, give us fan art of all of those directors having a wonderful Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> and the three of us, Dressed as like Dickensian waifs standing at the window, looking sadly in at them. Oh, I would love that so much. <laughs> well, before we talk about the dinner in the book, we start with Mick Garris's childhood, which is it's very much what you expect of someone who loves horror. You've got this bright, talented, weird kid. Didn't have a lot of friends. And like we say often, he grew up to be a really awesome person, by all accounts, like many horror lovers do. So let's talk about some things from his childhood that stood out in this section. Um, The first thing right away that made me realize I love this journey is finding out that he not only built a full-on graveyard in his backyard as a set for a movie he made when he was a kid, (laughs) but he used to climb into the coffin he built to read. (laughs) <laughs> that's rad oh my god that sounds so relaxing i know i need a reading coffin <laughs> a guys reading coffin. most people want a nook no i, I want a coffin it's basically a the bed version of a nook <laughs> i really enjoyed the part about him interviewing ray bradbury when he was 16 years old and his wow. his explanation that he got into interviewing not for the journalistic side of things but to get his questions answered, which I kind of think, I feel like that's how we do it on our podcast, mm, too. Yeah. Talking to people we admire and we want to ask them about their passions and just have that conversation with them. So that part really, really spoke to me. And also, <laughs> nope, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I was going to be like, why we asked Mick Garris for one. <laughs> <laughs> that part really spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Him talking about getting those questions answered. This I will say uh, I've, I've contacted Mick Garris uh, after reading this just to say that, you know, I appreciated the opportunity. I was glad to read it. But that the, my big takeaway was it made me want to be a better interviewer because yeah. his his passion is so palpable in it. And I, I think that uh, this goes into what comes a little bit later when he is in, he talks about his band, the kind of all in this together mentality that his work, his whole mindset since the beginning of his career has been, let's all work together to do the best thing we can do. And I think that's rad. And I, I think that really ties in well to this sort of 
through note that Abby does a fantastic job of having all throughout all of this is that, and I can't remember if it was in the foreword or the author's note, but Mick Garris is described as being the sort of person who, like all of his skeletons are on display in his house, like for people <laughs> to admire and enjoy. They are not in his closet. They are through his his horror work. And from what everyone says of him throughout this book, he appears to be, you know how sometimes you meet like your idols and you're like, shit, <laughs> that was, wish that hadn't happened. He seems like a safe person to meet and admire and support his work. And that's so nice right now <laughs> to, the, to feel that safety. <laughs> it's so sad that that is a, a huge thing that basic human kindness is like, wow, that rules. <laughs> um, can, can I say if not to, you know, toot our own horn. But if we were to be able to interview Mick Gares, what what questions would you guys want to ask first? Ooh, that's a good question. Oh, actually. Because you're completely right. Like, that is the way that we do this. Like, we're not in it to be taken seriously as interviewers. It's just like, oh, this guy (laughs) made some rad movies and he'll talk to us? Hell yeah. yeah. Well, it's hard to, like... hopefully our listeners don't mind this too terribly, but a lot of our interviews takes us like, and maybe I cut some of it out, but an actual recording takes us like 25 minutes (laughs) before we're to more of the heart of our interview because we're just just chatting with the filmmakers about their projects and what they like just in general and what they don't like. And it's so much fun. There are, I can think of two questions. One is very short. The other one, probably a much longer answer. One, I'm insanely curious in his opinion, what's the best thing he has ever written but hasn't sold? Ooh. Because Holy he taught- shit, that's a great interview <laughs> question for anyone. Yeah, because he, he in one of his, uh, in the early chapters, I, I believe, he talks about that he just writes when he feels like writing, and when he's done writing, he's done writing. <laughs> that's <laughs> and, amazing. And so I, I can't imagine the, the screenplays or things that are sitting around his house. And uh, the other thing is actually uh, we can we'll talk about a little bit in Sleepwalkers. He had that scene that has he's got uh, Stephen King, I believe, uh, Toby Hooper and Clive Barker. I think it's those three three in this one scene. It's a one take cameo. And so I'm just curious if he ever thought in his whole career that he'd plant an Easter egg in a movie like that. That would make people freak out (laughs) 20 years later. (laughs) Because you watch that and you see these people show up and that's so cool. Uh, I just wonder what that feels like. Is it weird to just... Because I assume this would be over Zoom, I'd hope, and there'd be video. Not that we'd record it, but we always like to do video so that we don't talk over each other. Is it weird to just just sit and watch somebody talk? (laughs) Technically, Technically, we do that. Because only one of us is talking at a time Te- here in the room. that's what conversation <laughs> is. Well, I, I guess for my part of the interview, I just be a really good listener. No, it's I, I was already a fan of his work, but after reading through this biography, now I would probably be a little starstruck. It'd be like when I briefly met Stephen King for a book signing and I froze. I didn't <laughs> cry. I thought I would cry. I would have cried. Yeah. Uh, there's also been they talk about the interviews with Mick Garris being in his office and occasionally will reference the things that are just around his office. He has the grimoire from Hocus Pocus. Oh, my in Lord. His room. <laughs> and to my great pleasure, I 
am a huge fan of something that in the book he talks about that no one really has ever seen. Do you remember? I wonder if this is the thing that I wanted to talk about for a million years and does relate to my question. Go on. Is it Quicksilver Highway? No. Oh, so Quicksilver Highway was a TV movie on Fox that I learned in this book was actually a backdoor pilot for a series, which is cool as hell. But I remember I recorded it on VHS because I wasn't going to be home when it was on. So I made sure that I could watch it. And uh, the first he adapted a Clive Barker story and a Stephen King story in this. And the Stephen King story was the Chattering Teeth. And so they built a giant set of chattering teeth uh-huh. and he has that in his office and that makes me so happy. <laughs> you guys, we have to rob Mick Garrett. <laughs> oh my gosh. I want that fucking grimoire. <laughs> anyway, my 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 question is uh, related to what he would have and souvenirs from his movie is I, I would want to ask him if he still has the fuzz bucket suit. <laughs> <laughs> And if I can have it. <laughs> Fuzzbucket is on Disney+. Plus. I, I watched it. <laughs> it's a nightmare. Yeah? Oh, it's so crazy. It is it is 1,000% worth it for the most Mick Garrett. Like, the most... It, it's not a horror movie. It's a made-for-TV Disney movie from 1986. About a, 1984. About a little boy who has an imaginary friend named Fuzzbucket. Everyone thinks he's a weirdo, but then he sees Fuzzbucket and he's, um, imagine Alf <laughs> as made by Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> um, it, it, it's horrible. <laughs> it, it's, it's absolutely horrifying. But there's a scene near the beginning of the movie. Fuzzbucket is invisible. For the beginning of the movie, and it's just this annoying little Disney kid talking to an empty room. And he's like, oh, Fuzzbucket, how'd you be invisible? Oh, we gotta get you fixed. Well, when he finally fixes Fuzzbucket and Fuzzbucket becomes visible again, it is a sequence of him fading in through a, a series of fades. But it goes from nothing to a horrifying skeleton. <laughs> to a horrifying skeleton graphically filled with guts. Oh my god. <laughs> and then Kick finally, ass. the horrible monster that is Fuzz Bucket proper. <laughs> it's amazing. There, this book talks a lot about Fuzz Bucket. Oh, thank so god. If our it's listeners, a whole chapter. Yeah, if our listeners are enticed by what Ben just described, they will enjoy that. You have to. It's, you have to go watch Fuzz involve- Bucket. Screwing in a mailbox. Screwing in a mailbox or <laughs> screwing in a mailbox? Excuse me. <laughs> what now? The the scene where he's in the inside the mailbox trying to escape. Yes. I'm going to give away something in this chapter because it's my favorite thing. In the script, it just, because he's trying to, he escapes by unscrewing yeah. the screws. In the script, it just says, screwing noises are heard. <laughs> and the, the censors sent the script back and they're like, you can't have that. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, what? What do you mean? Oh, you guys are disgusting. And I had to change it to unscrewing noises. That's fantastic. <laughs> I set the book down and just laughed. Can we talk about, well, so not forever, because this isn't going to be as impactful to you guys as it is to me. But we, as we continue through his work in the first parts of this book, his, his inspirations and Ultimately, what got him where he is today, there was another section that I just freaking loved. 
and it, it was about his band. So in college, he was in a band and he was singing and writing music. And this book spoke to me because I'm in a band and it's, I don't know, it, it's hard to describe just how you feel like creating something like that. It's like our podcast, just that fulfilling sense of I could do this forever. Like, I don't even want to stop to eat. I just want to do this <laughs> thing that makes me happy. But what I love about this section, because it really ties into directing and, and just who it seems like he is as a person, what Abby is trying to convey to us. He's talking about how that experience shaped his work as a screenwriter and a director. Because they weren't just playing music and singing words. His intent seemed to have been to make music in more of a cinematic experience, something that the listener would feel and would visualize. And taking that in his career in film, his goal was to bring together a team of people who were the best at what they did and be like this conductor to to create something that wasn't just adequate, but was actually special, which like I know, duh, that sounds really simple. And most people want to create something special. But there are a lot of people that the content they're creating is something paycheck, not something special. Right. Or they're jumping on a bandwagon. They're like, oh, horrors in. I'm going to do a horror film. And you can tell when that happens because there's no heart and soul in it. And so even if the end result is kind of bad or like maybe a little too cheesy or too campy, it, you can still appreciate it and you can still find something really awesome and passionate and good in it. And I think that is so horror. And it's like this guy embodies that part of horror because he's a goofy dude which i think is very clear in a lot of <laughs> his work too that is the one that there are two things from everything that i watched that i felt okay i get this guy like i, I can point out his marks and one is he's fucking funny <laughs> like yeah. yes. even Fuzzbucket and uh like hocus pocus being disney movies they can be corny but rewatching them, there are bits that are just fucking hilarious mm -hmm. that I was shocked to find genuine laughs in these uh, kids' movies. It's a difference between like phoning it in, which is intolerably bad, mm -hmm. and a passionate failure. Like horror can <laughs> yeah. can walk that line like no other genre can. And not not like any of those things were failures. Those yeah. <laughs> those are all it's fun hugely, and awesome. Yeah. But when when someone has that passion, they can't make something truly bad. Mm -hmm. That was the second thing that I think is Mick Garris's calling card is you can feel in every scene of everything that he has made that he is having the best time in the world yeah and I, I i would give anything in the world to have been able to be on the set of critters too <laughs> i cannot yeah. imagine how much fun that set was the critters two chapter what i want to read it again just reading about <laughs> all because it, it goes into a lot of detail about all of the practical effects and and the thought behind that one little thing that would, you know, not just make it a cool effect and look really awesome, but make it kind of cool and funny. And just to read about that yeah, is like, really cool. Are you talking about the critter ball? Or and, the alien and, whose tits yeah, explode out of her God. shirt? That and, shit is awesome. The and funniest the, thing in the world. The splat critter. And yeah. then the staple from yes. Oh, my God. That was the, the other thing that I was oh like, God. critters too. Having never watched Critters 1, <laughs> watching Critters 2 is an experience because I was like, 
why is there a dumb hick on this spaceship? What's going on? <laughs> the fact that Critters 2 has the craziest visual gag that I've ever seen in a movie that should not work, but just the glee of the staple in the middle <laughs> of this top one, topless woman's stomach because an alien scanned her out of a Playboy. Yeah. Should not work, and it does, because it's just so fucking crazy. Uh, when I, I always, so I watched those movies as a kid, so like my memory of them, I couldn't really pick apart which was which. All of my memories of Critters is the sequel. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, halfway through. I was texting someone. And they're like, "What are you up to?" I'm like, "I'm watching uh, Critters Two: Colon Gremlins Two: Colon The New Batch because <laughs> it's just that level of bonkers." Yeah, giving all the critters personalities and traits. Yeah, <laughs> the scene where they go in to the burger factory and the the kid is like. It's their leader, and it's just a slightly <laughs> bigger critter. <laughs> Hilarious. Uh, he talks about in that chapter that his his style that he's carried through several movies is uh, Norman Rockwell goes to hell, oh, and I fuck. cannot think of a better way to describe <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> so before we, we kind of wrap this up by talking about a couple more things, I, I just want to go through a little bit more of what our our listeners can expect if they pick this up and they definitely should so there's there's some stuff about you know post band kind of how he got into the the scene a little bit the work he did he did all these amazing interviews for the z channel and you can find those on his website mickgarrisinterviews.com there there's also another part of this that gets true crimey wait what there's there's a little bit of murder in here too. wait what gonna have to read the book everybody <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, th this is exciting. I'm not going to read any of the books from now on. I want you guys to just <laughs> oh, no. spring these We've things on a problem. So the final thing in the, what I'm thinking of, you know, the first couple hundred pages, the setup of his life and who he is. I sincerely love the story of how he met his wife, Cynthia. She watched all of his interviews. She really enjoyed what he's doing. And she spotted him at a restaurant one night. And it's after she spent the day working on a house. And she was just all like, grimy and had paint on her and, but there he was and she thought well this guy seems approachable i'm gonna do it and so they hit it off immediately and the intent like wasn't i'm gonna do it because look at that guy it was just that guy's cool but they had chemistry they very quickly started a relationship moved in together but my favorite part of this is that the author is interviewing cynthia about how they met and she's just talking about all the ways that mcgarris impressed her and sort of how she fell for him and she adds that he's the best sexual partner she's ever had. Yeah. And hey. the author, the author's like, so Mick great. did not want this included for modesty's sake. However, dude is erotic as fuck, so it stays. <laughs> yeah. That's, the author note there really, Fucking. really he's, he's going to be really pleased when he hears us recap that. Oh, yeah. Don't like, <laughs> Fucking get it, Mick. <laughs> that's how you write a fucking biography. <laughs> So one thing I wanted to ask you guys as two individuals who are way more like a thousand times more experienced just being in the, the cinematic universe on an mm -hmm. acting standpoint than Gotta I am. Say, I'm a watcher. 
real unfortunate timing of the I thought you were gonna say as two people who are much more erotic <laughs> than, <laughs> don't as, know where this episode is going go on. as two erotic fellows um, just curious can we change the podcast name two erotic fellows CM and two erotic fellows that's, that's a Patreon exclusive yeah. that I, people have to pay us not to listen to <laughs> I, I enjoyed the section a little later on when he's talking about working with actors and kind of learning their language, like understanding who needs direction, who wants direction, who doesn't. And it, it just seems like he's the style of director that makes everybody working with him feel comfortable. He talks a lot about getting intimidated by actors who really know their stuff too, but just that he seems like someone who knows what he's doing, who manages actors very well and is like the most humble person about it. He is, everything they talk about his directing style, he is the dream director. He is the director you want on a project. Because there there are people who come in and strong arm, my way is my way. Mm -hmm. There are people who, if studio gets involved, will just bow to what the studio says. Anytime it seems like McGarris has come up against these things, he has found a way to, to find the common ground with everybody mm-hmm. to figure out what's the what's best for this project. It doesn't matter what you think is best for you. What's best for this? The whole of all these people, we have tons of people, hundreds of people working on this project. Think about all them. And I think that's that's really great for a director who has so much power to take that stance and kind of fight for the little guy. Yeah. It's like Fuzz Bucket says. Um, <laughs> Fuzz bucket, wee! I couldn't have said it any better. Exactly, and you didn't. <laughs> I think it might be too late to get that quote put mm-hmm. on the book jacket, but we will try. No, I don't want to turn this into all about Stephen King, but we are a Stephen King podcast, so people should expect it from us. Yeah, yeah. of course. I, I would like to talk about his huge body of work on Stephen King projects. Man, where to start? I I wish I had started my Mick Garris marathon mm-hmm. a little earlier because there are I, I avoided re-watching or watching any of the Stephen King adaptations of books we haven't covered yet because I know we will. Yeah. And we'll get to it. But I have to say it was a real struggle not to re-watch the made-for-TV desperation. Oh, oh I bet. Yeah. I haven't seen it since it was released. But I remember watching that and thinking that, first of all, Ron Perlman as the the cop villain <laughs> yeah, he's so is great. so perfect. And I remember loving the whole thing so much. I'm so excited to watch that. <laughs> yeah. I'm really excited for Bag of Bones. Yeah. It, it's crazy the number of King adaptations he has done. I sat and watched. Uh, I specifically went out. And it took me a while to track it down, but I got a copy of the ABC Shining miniseries because, hot take listeners, it's the superior version of The Shining. Deal with it. <laughs> that was aggressive. <laughs> oh, I, I've, I get slammed so hard for talking about this. We got invited onto another podcast to talk about The Shining, and I spent most of the time talking about how the ABC series was better. <laughs> it, it's, yeah, we're and on Stephen Weber's amazing. We're, we're on King's side yeah. in this one. The Shining, the movie is something just that I kind of separate in my mind. Yeah, and really I enjoy is. it Absolutely. for its own merits. And yeah. 
But rewatching that again, uh, one made me remember how much I love Stephen Weber's performance as Jack Torrance because it's just you actually care. You care about what Jack's going through, mm-hmm. and it's so cool. And even though the uh, hedge animals, <laughs> the topiary animals moving, it does not get the upgrade because they. Uh, he actually talks about it in the book that the way they they shot it. They would have to go in and do a bunch of extra work to upgrade those effects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so the, some of that stuff doesn't age well. But as a whole, it's still perfect. I mean, that came out in what? The mid 2000s, yeah. early mid 2000s. So, yeah, you have to figure made for oh. TV stuff from the early uh, pre mid 2000s. Sorry, we all just shared a look. Yeah, because- you, you two both <laughs> looked at each other like. Oh, my Lord. I, I was just reminded of his comments about the hand of God. I was just yes, about to say that. Oh, my God. I have to hear this. Yeah. Boy. Uh, so I have the quote here in talking about the oh, the chapter on the stand is so awesome. And they're such great behind the scenes. He goes in depth on talking about a bunch of the actors and his experience with them. Highly recommend. I cannot recommend that chapter enough. Uh, but he said, quote, the hand of God scene was embarrassing and the visual effect was embarrassing. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I feel that. <laughs> but there's another tidbit from the stand that I have to share with you, Ben, about Matt Frewer, Trash Can Man. Hit me. Which they interview Matt Frewer pops up Fuck across up, this Matt book Frewer. so <laughs> often and I've never been so happy to hear from him all, all the time. He went, they were in Vegas shooting some of that stuff in that very late stage radiation burn. He went out on the strip in that makeup, <laughs> no one gave him a second look because <laughs> it's Vegas. He got a lap dance in it. Yeah, they took him to a strip club. And the stripper is just like, all right. That's amazing. That's so she probably good. still tells that story like, I gave this dying man a lap dance. That is probably not. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, it is Vegas. It's yeah. where dreams go to die. That's. that's- Probably just, was just a Tuesday for that for that lady. <laughs> oh, also we could we got real close. We could have had a Mick Garris directed Rose Red. I did actually. I read that on uh, IMDb. Oh yeah, and that yeah. would have been. I, I would have loved Man, to see it. On another level of the tower, we do. <laughs> yeah, and right? I just want to be there. Amen. Okay, so because this is a biography, you know, this isn't our normal format. Obviously, we're not going to go through everything beat by beat because we want all of you to buy this book and read it for yourself because Abby does a fantastic job. There is so, this is a little over 400 pages. It, it, yeah, we got right advanced copy, yeah. so I don't know if that'll change, but it, this book feels like 800 pages. There's so much information in it. And if you're the kind of person who wants to know, who wants to know that behind the scenes stuff, wants to see how the sausage is made, just wants all of that cool, juicy information, definitely, definitely pick this up, which I guess is kind of accidentally a rating, but I should ask first, is there anything else you guys wanted to to talk about, about mixed work or this book? Oh, yes. I, I want to, as someone who watched a whole lot of movies for this, I do want to recommend his newest movie. It came out in 2018. It's a Shudder exclusive. It's Ooh. called Nightmare Cinema. It is an anthology series, and much like Masters of Horror, each short is directed. Uh, Mick Garris directs one. Joe Dante directs mm-hmm. a very good twist on a slasher uh, story. Oh, I forget his name. I want to say David Slade. He directed 30 Days of Night. 
30 Days of Night is great. It's a really yeah. good movie. He has a short in it that is sincerely distressing about a woman slowly losing her mind and it, without giving anything away, it's just very, very, very upsetting. And then at the end, Mick Garris directs a segment called Dead that is just a fucking solid ghost story mm. about a kid that dies for uh, a minute and comes back mm. and what happens to him. Oh, man. I want to watch that so badly. Is, that anthologies, not enough of them. It, it <laughs> is, exactly. It is a solid movie. Some of the effects are amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, really cool. And I'd never heard of it. So everyone, if you need something to watch, check it out. Also, Fuzz Bucket. <laughs> <laughs> the last thought I want to say is involves the last two chapters of this book. One of the things that, that Abby talks about in her in the foreword is that the people she interviewed for this book couldn't talk about how much they love Mick Garris enough, mm-hmm. which is uh, a testament itself. But the at, at the very end of the book, there's a nice chapter that's basically everybody that's been interviewed getting a chance to say another nice thing about him. And then the last chapter wraps up with him kind of writing back to the reader I struggle sometimes to read biographies and nonfiction because I know where it ends most of the time. <laughs> you know, it's uh, the, I know where the journey ends. Uh, so it was just really, it felt really nice to wrap up a biography in such a heartfelt way. It just made me happy at the end of it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm chuckling because you just said nice a lot. And it makes me, it's, this book is so like Midwest, like <laughs> yeah. kind. It's like, well, thank you. Well, no, thank you. Well, thank you for thanking no, me for absolutely. thanking you. It's it, beautiful. <laughs> it's crazy that having not read, read the book, just from his movies, largely horror movies, mm-hmm. it's crazy that that comes through. It is it's, work. It's even when it's like a violent, you know, anything even when a ball of critters eats a guy's back, uh, <laughs> you're just like, this is a good time. Yeah, it, you can feel that coming mm. through all of his work. Another thing I want to I want to give him a shout out real quick, because they're, they do address the fact that there are no lady masters of horror. And mm. it's not for lack of trying. And he they did approach a few female directors and scheduling didn't work out or they didn't want to be placed in that horror box and and a lot of male directors that they approach too, who are not involved also were concerned about being placed in that horror Mm -hmm. box. And I just have to say that baffles me because I, I, I wish I was placed in a horror box. (laughs) What a place to be, especially if there are people like this and the people he works with and the people who take the time to shed more light on his work. Like Abby, if these are the individuals in this community, like absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. These put me in the box and lock it. It's our people (laughs) like horror people are just rad. All right. uh, Let's, let's wrap it up with a rating. I think you can tell by how much, we really enjoyed it and have had fun sharing these fun facts. We discovered that it's a, it's a real good read. I highly recommend five out of five blue chambray shirts. CM also going to give it five out of five blue chambray shirts. Pick it up for sure. Fuzz bucket is heartfelt. <laughs> uh, it teaches a really good lesson about believing in yourself and uh, listening to your friends. And it gave me nightmares because it's a little chubby rat man. Five out of five blue chambray shirts. That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us for our next episode. For Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, this is Joshua Khan reminding you 
You have to have the hide of a rhinoceros to do work that's intended for public consumption. Hey everyone, Sam Alexander here. Thank you for listening to our chat about Master of Horror, the official biography of Mick Garris by Abby Bernstein. Abby did a great job. This is a fantastic read. Thank you again to Natalie at ATB Publishing for reaching out to us. We also have a written review on our website, constantreaders.org. The book comes out on August 13th, but if you don't want to wait, you can pre-order your copy from atbpublishing.com. I did, even though I technically have a digital copy. We all know I can't help myself. Instead of telling you how to find us like I usually do, find this book instead. Show Abby some love. Show Abby some love and show Mick and the horror community some love by grabbing your copy. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.